Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of this, the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, please turn with me to Nehemiah. We're going to be reading chapter 1 together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived, the exile is great in trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which will have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And this is God's word to us. Heavenly Father, help us today to prize this word, to feed on it. May it nourish our spiritual health, reform our lives and prayer, and encourage us to keep persevering in trusting and living for you. For we ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. In your outline, you may have noticed the term mise-en-scene. For those who are familiar with the cooking terms, you may have heard the phrase mise-en-place, which is French for everything in its place or having everything prepared before you get into cooking. Mise-en-scene is a theatrical term. Basically means setting the scene, but it also means a little bit more than just that. It's about giving us the backdrop, getting us the picture of what is going on so that we can properly appreciate and understand what the play or the movie is all about. So as we head down to this book of Nehemiah, it's really important not just for our passage today, but for the entire book of Nehemiah that we get ourselves oriented really well. If you've been in churches long enough, you'll know that the only time that Nehemiah is ever pulled out and preached on is when there is a building project needing to be done. SLE Church is about to plant a church and maybe buy a building. Is that why we're preaching Nehemiah? (laughs) Hardly. The message of Nehemiah is way bigger than just getting a, a pep talk about building a wall or building a building. But to know what that message is, we need to do some mise en scene. We need to know what's going on in the big picture so that we can appreciate what this whole book is about. Now, to do that, we need to kind of rewind the clock a fair bit. Nehemiah was living and preaching and active around-ish, 450-ish years before Jesus. We're going to have to rewind a thousand years before even that, give or take, to the time of Moses. He has just helped the, think, picture it with me, uh, think of, if it helps, think of the Prince of Egypt, the movie, or uh, the Ten Commandments, if you uh, can think back, uh, if you've uh, remembered that from long ago. But Moses has just helped the nation of Israel escape from slavery in Egypt. And after a 40-year detour through the wilderness, they are now at the foot of the promised land, right? this land that God had promised to them centuries before. In his final sermon to the nation, Moses warns them about how they are to go into the land and how they need to trust God and his directions. And so we just had read out earlier uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' final sermon before they go in. And just before that passage in chapter 30, Moses has laid out a series of blessings and curses. If Israel obeyed God as they entered the land, then they would be abundantly blessed. But if Israel disobeyed God, then they would be cursed. One of the major curses in that long list of curses was what we call exile. If they kept disobeying God, if they kept turning their backs on God, then he would have little choice but to kick his people out of the promised land. Fast forward a few centuries and that thing happened. Centuries of sin, centuries of warning unheeded. Assyria, the nation of Assyria would come and smash 10 tribes in the north, and then Babylon would eventually smash the last two tribes in the south. 
Moses predicted it all. But then he also made some startling promises on behalf of God. Now, up on the screen are a sample of these promises from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Hello? Right, next one. All right, there we go. Let's, I'll get you guys to click through for me, it seems. All right, let's begin with chapter 30, verse 3. The Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 5. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Next slide. Verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Verse 8, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand. You get the picture? Right? These are some massive promises of restoration, a restoration even greater than the glory that they would have had before. Moses predicted at the start of their history that all of this would happen. Now fast forward from Moses to the time of exile, to this nation who are kind of now just in tatters away from their home. And then listen to how the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel take these promises and amplify them. Next slide. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. You can pick up there. Jeremiah is basically saying that at some point in the future, when the exiles return, it will become more famous than their escape from Egypt. This story of their exodus from Egypt was the story that everyone went to. You want to know who we are? Go back to that story. And Jeremiah is saying, no, when you come back from exile, it will even be bigger than that story. Next slide, Ezekiel chapter 23, uh, uh, Ezekiel 37, this is another long quote here. Uh, verse 21, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and one king shall be king over them all, and there shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their testable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is nothing short of a complete change of heart. One nation under God, never disobedient again. What Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, what Jeremiah said, what Ezekiel has said, these are big, big promises. And these big promises form the backdrop to the entire book of Nehemiah. If we want to read Nehemiah correctly, then we'll need to keep all of these promises humming in the background throughout 
this series. So now, fast forward with me from the time of exile to that time of exile, the people living in exile who were counting down the days that they, they knew that they were going to go home, and they must have had these words ringing in their ears. The, the promises of Moses and the prophets must have had their expectations through the roof. I know some people who don't watch the trailers to movies and the upcoming movies uh, because they want to avoid spoilers or they don't want to set up any expectations. But faithful Israelites couldn't help this. This was God's word to them. They were given the spoilers and they knew exactly what to expect. And so the exiles in Babylon must have cheered when Persia brought down that nation. They must have cheered again when Cyrus, the king of Persia, decreed that the exiles could return home. And so led by a man named Ezra, the people returned to build their homes and their lives. Now I mentioned Ezra because he's the book just before Nehemiah. And traditionally, both books were read together as one. Uh, Both books together cover a period of around 100 years from the return to the end of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, as we open up our pages, begins around 13 years after Ezra's return. And things are not going well. That's where we find ourselves as we open up our passage this morning. Nehemiah gets introduced to us first. In the final verse of today's passage, we read that he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, the cupbearer had an important role. It doesn't sound like much of a role, but it was quite an important role. They were usually one of the most trustworthy officials to the king. I think primarily because they were assigned to taste the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poison. So it wasn't the most glamorous job in the world either. Uh, But they were also sort of like the chief of staff for a president, someone who could advise the king on all sorts of matters. So it was actually a very high-ranking official job. We we then read that Nehemiah's brother, named Hanani, has gone to Judah and returned back to Susa, where Nehemiah is. It's possible that Nehemiah sent him to report on what he had seen. And so you see Nehemiah's question in verse 2. He wants to know not just about the city, but also about the people. How is everyone going? These were the people who had survived the exile, who those who had remembered what it was like, right, before those, uh, before, and the promises of God. But the report from Hanani is not good. Have a look at verse 3 with me. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Those wondrous and fantastical promises of God must have melted away at this news. Instead of a glorious return, the people are struggling hard. The wall was broken down, the gates were destroyed, a city on a hill with no defences, open and exposed, and a city in ruins with a, was a constant reminder of their past guilt and defeat and exile. And then read with me again the response of Nehemiah in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah responds to this news in tears and weeping and fasting and praying. 
Now try and connect with this moment here for a second. I don't think we as a people are generally used to receiving or being devastated by bad news. Maybe we'll hear personal bad news and it might hit us. But to get a sense of what Nehemiah was feeling, I think you'd need to go back to 2011. Here in Brisbane with the 2011 floods. Now, we had an, a, a similar flood earlier this year. It was a lot smaller. But you go back to 2011, and the collective pain and the emotion of that moment was weighty for everyone. All of us felt it. The devastation and the loss was huge. The images of our landmarks underwater, walkways and pontoons ripped from their moorings and adrift down the river, thousands of people's homes wrecked by floodwaters. Interview after interview, all those images, all those conversations we had with our neighbours. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that almost everyone felt a collective heaviness and sadness. Now take those feelings and magnify them and add to that a feeling of national disgrace. You see, the 2011 floods were not the fault of the citizens of Brisbane. Right? You, can, you can't blame the citizens of Brisbane for what happened there. But the destruction of Jerusalem and the walls was completely and totally Israel's fault. They had messed up badly. And things were not getting better. And the city in ruins and their walls torn down and the gate burned down was a constant reminder of how badly they had messed up. So the first response was to weep. Who do you go to for help when you're in trouble? Who do you seek guidance and support from? Nehemiah is mourning the condition of the people, and the only place he knows to go to is to God in prayer. And what a big God he is. Uh, Nehemiah addresses God as Yahweh, O Lord, in capitals there. Yahweh, the personal name of God that he gave to Israel. No other nation knew God personally like Israel did. They knew his name. And then he begins his prayer by acknowledging how big and grand God is, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. A big reminder that God was not just the God of the local region and area, but God was God above all. He was supreme. He prays to the God who, at the end of verse 5, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Yahweh is a God of covenantal steadfast love. Now, what does that mean? It means that God loves his people, not because they are worthy of love or because they are beautiful, but because he promises to love them. His covenantal steadfast love sticks with his people even in the ugliness and grotesqueness of their rebellion and sin. He made a covenant, a profound promise and oath to love his people. Those loved by God will love him and obey him. This is a prayer to a big God, a big God of the heavens and a big God of covenantal love. And then notice how he prays in the first half of verse 6. Have a look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. 
using the features of a human body. He's not saying, Nehemiah is not teaching here that God has ears and eyes like a human. But using the features of a human body, Nehemiah calls on God, uh, calls on God's ears to hear his prayer. He calls on God's eyes to see his agony. He wants God to be attentive. Please pay close attention to this prayer, a prayer that he has been praying persistently day and night. Pay attention, not because he's afraid that God won't hear or see the situation, but Nehemiah does not presume upon the grace of this great and awesome God. And that's a humbling lesson. The people of God should never assume that they deserve to have their prayers heard. It is always a gracious thing from God that he listens to and answers the prayers of his people. Now, what was the content of his prayer? You can see there there are two parts. The first part is a prayer of confession. The second part claims the promises of God. First, he starts with confession. Uh, Confession is, as one writer puts it, vomit of the soul, which is lovely imagery, isn't it? But I think it's perfect imagery, too. Because sin looks, always looks so sweet and always tastes sweet when we are doing it. But it is bitter and gross when we think back on it. And its proper taste, and the proper taste of sin is only savored when we cast it back up. Vomit of the soul. Nothing can grow your hatred of sin more keenly than personal confession. Nehemiah starts with confessing sin because he knows, he knows that that is the main reason why God's people are in trouble and shame. And he begins by owning and and acknowledging the sin of the people, but he also puts himself in that lot. He doesn't just pray for the people about their sin. He confesses himself as part of that sinning people. He says, we have sinned. And he even singles out his father's house and his own self as those who have sinned against God. Now, we'll, he'll get more specific in chapter 9 when, he's, when, again, another prayer of his is recorded. But in verse 7, he gets to the heart of the issue. So have a quick glance at verse 7. He says that Israel have acted very corruptly and have not kept God's commands. God's people have failed miserably. He's emphatic here as well. The people have acted very corruptly. In the presence of the great and awesome and covenant steadfast love of God, steadfast love keeping God, failure to keep his command is basically hating God. We have acted corruptly towards you. Day and night, Nehemiah was praying, walking through the extensive catalog of the sins of Israel that they have done against God. Nehemiah did not gloss over his sin. He spent a long time detailing it before God, not because God doesn't know, but because true and genuine repentance includes proper confession. But his prayer wasn't just about confessing sins. He confessed in order to get to the good news. And for Nehemiah, the good news was found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. For their sins, Israel was judged. They were sent off into exile. God fulfilled his threats in Deuteronomy 30. However, judgment is never the end of the story for God's faithful people. So Nehemiah's prayer turns quickly to hope in verse 9. Verse 9. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So what is Nehemiah doing here? He is taking something God promised in the Old Testament and he is claiming it for his people in the present. He recalls God's faithful promises and claims them for today. Now, there are some parts of the charismatic movement which have grossly distorted the idea of claiming the promises of God. The idea that they teach is that you name and claim what you want in God's name and with enough faith it will be yours. But the error in this teaching is that it encourages you to claim things that God never promises. I've seen it in memes, I've heard it, I've read it in books, I've heard it in their sermons. Say to your checkbook, you shall be balanced in Jesus' name, and it will be balanced. Sounds silly, but that is the teaching. See, if we're honest, when you hear that stuff, when you, when you listen through it and you walk through it, most of the things claimed are usually spent on ourselves. What Nehemiah here is doing is actually proper. God made some promises in the past, clear promises. He promised to regather his people and bless them abundantly in the land. He promised that. So God, make good on your promises. Verse 10, remember that these are your people, the ones you have saved by your great power and hands. So make good on your promises, please. When confronted by the devastating and sad situation in, back in Jerusalem, see, Nehemiah prays. He prays knowing that God is powerful and can act. And he prays knowing that God is faithful to his word and therefore will act. He prays for with future hope, grounded in the power and actions of God in the past and on his word. So, verse, first, uh, these first 11 verses, what are we to do in 2022? What are we supposed to do with this prayer? So, fast forward now, two and a half thousand years after Nehemiah. And in some ways, we pray in the same way, but not exactly like Nehemiah and not exactly for the same things. See, our prayers are prayed with an even greater confidence that Nehemiah knew. We pray knowing that God has acted. Christians believe that God did act, and so we hope and ask God to act when we pray, knowing that he who did not spare his own son for us will also give us more. You see, this is, why, this is why we shouldn't read the Old Testament and jump straight to us for application. Don't just go from the page in the Old Testament to you in 2022. Right? Nehemiah prayed with big concerns. He was concerned that God would keep and fulfill his Old Testament promises to his people. And so he calls on God to remember those promises. And centuries after this prayer, God did keep that promise in Christ. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. The powerful God that Nehemiah prays to, the God who was faithful in the past, shows his deepest 
and greatest faithfulness in sending his son. Is God powerful to save? The cross powerfully shows it. Is God faithful to act? The cross shouts that faithfulness across every generation. Is God good? Friends, the cross is a goodness and kindness beyond our imagination. And that is why, especially when we're in deep spiritual distress, that is why we can pray like Nehemiah, but better. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a believer, have you come to know and to realize that God is powerful enough to save you? That the cross shows that power. It also shows God's kindness to us. Maybe there are some here today who have come in great, deep spiritual distress. Maybe you've come today realizing how, you, how much you deeply need God. And if that's you, then come to the cross. See where your greatest need of forgiveness and mercy is met. Maybe you've come today and you think you're fine. But friend, I want to say to you that you stand before God in your own sense of deep shame and trouble. If Israel offended God by their disobedience, the bad news of the Bible is that everyone has offended God with their disobedience. But there is hope for everyone if they would find out more. And would you do that today? Christians get to pray to a big God who has remarkably revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus said that if you look at me, you are looking at the Father. Think about that. Jesus makes a big, bold claim that the perfection the, the perfect revelation of the Father is found by looking at him. If I told you, hey, if you want to know what God is like perfectly in every way, just look at me, Pastor Steve. Just look at me. Now, if I told you that, you, you, you laugh because you know that's mad. You know, you know what I'm like and those closest to me know what I'm like and that's a crazy claim to make. There's, a, there's very little about my life which reflects God's omnipotent power, let alone his unending compassion and grace. But when Jesus says the same thing, it makes total sense. When he's walking on water, calming the storm, when he's welcoming little children, when he's dealing patiently and compassionately with the crowds, when he is firmly and strongly rebuking the Pharisees, when he is claiming the title of God himself, we see God the Father on full display through the Son. This same Son who dies for us so that we could be counted as children of God. Friends, this is the one to whom we pray, a big God. And that should cause our prayers to be reverent, not flippant. We have personal access like children to their parent, but we must not be careless with how we speak with God. It is an awesome privilege to pray to God and address him as our father in heaven. And so I've often found that when I listen to to people pray, I can quickly work out how converted they are, how truly converted they are in their heart 
by how they address God in their prayers, whether they simply pray, dear God, or whether they pray a heartfelt heavenly father. The only children of God can address him that way. What a joint privilege we have to pray to this big God. And that means we can also pray big prayers, big prayers of confession, like what Nehemiah prayed, but in some ways even better. As we saw before, confession is about opening up about your sins to God, speaking to him about the ways in which you have fallen, whether intentionally or not, the vomit of the soul. Why, why, why should we be confessing our sins? Hasn't Jesus already died for our sins? Why, why do we need to bring them up? The answer is because sin still has a way of disrupting our lives with God. Now, let's be clear on this. Jesus has died for our sins fully and finally. When we sin, God still looks at us the same through the blood of his son, Jesus, So from God to us, nothing has changed. Nothing changes. But sin has a way of disrupting how we see ourselves before God. It messes up our view of God. When we have rebelled against God, when we have failed again and again, we know what it's like to feel that sense of shame. When you've yelled at your kids for the 50th time after you've promised in your heart that you would never do that again. When you've finished saying those harsh and cutting words, you know you've lost your patience and you let your anger and frustration get the better of you. When you've finished cleaning up after yourself, after viewing those images on your phone or the computer screen, images that you swore you'd never look at again. Those times when we have felt that shame, what's the last thing that we want to do? The last thing we want to do is recount in detail what we've done to mess up. If you're anything like me, you'll want to say sorry very quickly and move on. But I'm guessing that, like me, you kind of just gloss over your sin in your prayers. See, confession is scary. Confession, it's scary to confront the exact way in which you've rebelled against God. It's scary to admit the specific things you have done wrong. It feels like confession is about inviting shame and embarrassment into your life all over again. But here's the good news. Christians can confess their sins with confidence. Confession is not about is not about avoiding being disqualified, right? It, as if our failure to fess up will mean that we mess out. We, we miss out, sorry, not mess up. We mess out and then we miss out. Right, I, I was talking with someone during the week and he said to me, you know, we're chatting about the, the character of God. One of, one of the characters of God that we don't feel like we can connect with. And he said to me, I, I find it really hard to connect with the idea that God is slow to anger because I, can't, I constantly feel that it's all, I play, I'm playing Russian roulette with God. He's got this gun with a bullet in the chamber, and at some point the bullet's going to go off after I sin. And I thought, wow, how many of us feel that way too? How many of us are feeling like God is waiting for us with a big stick, waiting to whack us if we ever admit 
if we, if we fail to admit how much we've sinned. But Christians can confess their specific sins knowing that God does hear and will forgive because of the cross. There is no sin which is too ugly or too shameful that Jesus has not already dealt with. The anger, the lust, the envy, the greed in our hearts, the the mixed up desires that we may be feeling in our actions, Jesus has paid for it all. The cross destroys the fear of confession. It removes the shame of confession. And it guarantees that confession will be met with the loving and open arms of our Father in heaven and our brother Jesus Christ. And if we can be confident in our confession before God, then let us treat our confessions with one another with that same love and grace and patience and gospel-centeredness. Have you had someone do that for you? I remember I got caught red-handed once, red-handed in sin. I got an SMS from my brother. Hey, Stephen, I noticed this the other day. I made the mistake of reading it because then I wondered, how long can I leave this brother on red? Two blue ticks. How long can I leave him there before responding? Maybe I could wait all day. Oh, I saw your message, but I couldn't reply. That would be a lie. I have to confess that as well. So this message, and I confessed, I owned my guilt. And I remember the response was nothing short of gospel-centered beautiful. Stephen, remember that the blood of Jesus has washed away your sins. And 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 then followed up with an encouragement to keep persevering against this sin. Let's do the same for each other. We pray to a big God. We can pray confession with confidence and we can pray claiming the big promises of God. Now, if the error in some parts of the charismatic movement is to name and claim things that God does not promise, what do we evangelicals do? Have we overcorrected this error and sucked out all the confidence in our prayer requests? Have we reduced prayer to mere wish, making weak suggestions to God? So how do you make the right claims in our prayers? How do you know that you're not claiming things that God hasn't promised? And the simple thing, the simple answer is to pray the things that God has promised to us in the gospel and in the New Testament. Now, we don't pray in a demanding way. We don't name and claim as though we are the ones directing God, but it is entirely right and good to take what God has already clearly promised to us in the gospel and to call him to fulfill those promises. So, for example, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, as you meditate on those lines and you pray through that prayer, you can know that God will answer yes to each of those prayers. When you pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, he will answer yes. When you pray for your daily physical and spiritual bread, God will answer yes. Another example, as you read through the prayers of Paul in his letters, 
you pray for those same things, if you are concerned about the same things in your prayers, God will answer with a resounding yes. Pray the things, <clears throat> pray the things that God has promised to us in the gospel and in the New Testament. Claim those things by calling on God to remember his word. And when you pray like this, you are not only praying in step with Nehemiah, you'll also be praying in a way that God has always intended for us to pray. Nehemiah's prayer here today in chapter 1, is, it's a wonderful model for us, for us, but for believers in Jesus, we can pray better prayers with more confidence. Jesus has come. He has fulfilled the hopes that Nehemiah prayed for. So let us keep coming before our Heavenly Father reverently, with confidence of a child to their loving parent, confessing our sins with confidence and claiming those gospel promises he has made. Let me pray. O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with us, your children in Christ. We thank you that because in Christ, by trusting him, you are always attentive now. You always listen. So help us to come before you, not to presume upon our prayers, but to come to you with confidence, knowing our relationship with you is solidified, cemented through Jesus' death. Help us to grow confident as we confess our sins. That as we confess our sins, we would grow in greater hatred and disgust of the sins we wrestle with that that might compel us to turn away from that and to turn to you. Help us to come before you, remembering all that you have promised in your word, to call you to act, to pray prayers in which you will answer yes clearly. Remember us in this way. For your glory and our joy we pray. Amen.